Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm Carrie Miller, and tonight you're hearing Indivisible from Minnesota Public Radio here in St. Paul, Minnesota. This is a team effort between WNYC and New York and Minnesota Public Radio, and Thank you to all of the public radio stations who are airing Indivisible. The show was created to invite a national conversation about President Trump's first 100 days in office. On Thursdays, I'm taking a look at American identity, who we believe we are, the stories we tell ourselves about what it means to be an American, how the upheaval and divisiveness in our political system is challenging our concept of identity for many Americans. You know, I think of this show as an effort to stop talking past one another and actively listen to each other, and I know that's harder to do than it sounds. So tonight, think you know an elite when you spot one? Is that a term you use in a contemptuous or dismissive way? Are you what other Americans would call an elite? We're going to talk about why we've become a country that loves to hate its elites, even as many of us aspire to be one. And as our guests join us, I'd like you to think about this. If you voted for President Trump, how do you interpret his promise to take the country back from the elites? I mean, what does that really mean to you? What does it say to you? And for all of us, what does elite really mean? Is it about income? Is it about education? Is it about political party? So as our guests get into the conversation here, I'd like to hear from you if you voted for Donald Trump how you interpret this commitment to take the country back from the elites. And for everyone, what does elite really mean? I mean, is it about your bank account? Is it about how much higher education you have? Is it about the political party that you belong to? Here's the phone number, 844-745-8255. And you can tweet me, at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I, M-P-R, hashtag Indivisible Radio. Our guest tonight, Nancy Eisenberg, is a historian at Louisiana State. She's the author of White Trash, the 400-year untold story of class in America. And she's with us today from Baton Rouge. Nancy, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Uh, Thanks for having me. Stephen Prothero is with us. He's chair of the Religion Department at Boston University and the author of Why Liberals Win Even When They Lose Elections. And he's with us tonight from Boston. And Stephen, welcome to you. It's good to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. It's a great show, and I'm glad to be on it. And we're glad to have you. Nancy, I think we have to acknowledge the, right off the top here, the reality of a billionaire who lived and worked in a golden tower and who brags about how rich he is, (laughs) using the word elite as a kind of expletive about other people. How does Donald Trump get away with that? Well, you have to realize that he falls into a very long tradition of politicians who pretend to speak for the common man, the forgotten man. Um, And unfortunately, uh, as even one of his 
campaign managers admitted he was he's has been projecting an image. Um, and part of the way he plays into identity politics is that he t attacks who he sees as liberal, politically correct people. And, and this has been b b used by Republicans for a long time, attacking New Yorkers, attacking Hollywood. It's sort of the cultural industry of elitism that he's drawing on when he attacks the politically correct. But in fact, what we forget about politics and democracy that goes all the way back to the beginning is that but politicians, the most important thing they do is the, is the, the, the language they use and the stage act that they perform. And this is exactly how Trump is able to reach an audience because of the way he speaks. Uh, he not only insults people, but he speaks in a way without any kind of civility, <laughs> which is his way of saying, even though, yes, I, I live in a, a gold uh, penthouse and I have Louis XIV furniture, uh, you know, I put on my red bubba cap and I go out in front of an audience and suddenly I'm the common man because he sounds like a working stiff from Queens. You know, Stephen, what, what's so, and Nancy has put her finger on this, what is so, I think, disorienting about this for some Americans is that what he says does not really match who he is. And in the end, maybe that's something Democrats really had a had a difficult time reconciling with. There's there's a division between who he is and what he says. And people chose to believe many people chose to believe uh, what he says over who he is. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, here's what happens when you get two historians on. We're, we want to talk about long tradition and back to the beginning. <laughs> and that's fine. You know, um, it, it reminds me, you know, in the election of 1800, uh, we had this big battle that was um, also about elites versus non-elites, where the elite was George Washington and, and uh, John Adams and uh, and the upstart renegade was Thomas Jefferson, who, if you know something about Thomas Jefferson, he was a book collector. He was a wine connoisseur. He spoke French. He wasn't exactly, you know, an, a, a non-elite, you know, common man or, or white trash, as um, Nancy's um, book title uh, indicates. And when he, when he marched to his inauguration, he didn't go uh, with horses and with plumes like George Washington had, but he just put on his, you know, britches, which were the equivalent at the time of, of jeans uh, and a ripped T-shirt and just walked down the street himself without a ride uh, to go to um, his inauguration. So I, I think um, the, the tradition I see here is Trump as a culture warrior goes back to that election of 1800, goes through the fights against Catholics and against Mormons, where the big question really is who is and who is not an American. And in this case uh, and in many prior cases of culture wars, we're taking a particular religious group, uh, in this case Muslims, and um, defining ourselves against them. So what it is to be an American is to be, a, in this case, a Christian who doesn't like Muslims or in prior cases to be a Protestant uh, who doesn't like Catholics or Protestant, who doesn't like uh, Mormons. And I think the twist here is that it used to be the elitists who were in charge of controlling the center of American culture who wanted to exclude these groups. And now it's the, the populists, or at least those who present themselves as populists like Trump, um, who tell this story about the dangers that are being presented by these outsider religions. And we beleaguered white Christians need to uh, stick together. So there's these interesting reversals of who is the outsider and who is the insider 
where we're being told that the rich people are the outsiders and even the Christians are the outsiders in a country that has more Christians uh, on earth yeah, than any th- other country. That is striking, Nancy. I-, I was I was watching today's press conference by the president that went more than an hour. And you can hear this same, I mean, he is very conscious of coming back to this thread of anti-elitism in whatever, it seems to be in, in much of what he's talking about. So I, I I went back to listen to a part of what he said. At one point he said, I ran for president to present the citizens of our country. I am here to change the broken system so it serves their families and their communities well. I am talking and really talking on this very entrenched power structure. And what we're doing is we're talking about the power structure and we're talking about its entrenchment. Okay, read out, it it is not entirely fully coherent, but I I think he's (laughs) touching base again on this idea of are you with me or against me? It's us against them, the elites. In whatever he talks about, what do you hear there? Yeah, I mean, again, I have to use the historical reference again. I agree. You know, I add about Thomas Jefferson. He actually dressed down, literally. This is a man who greeted visiting dignitaries in a dirty vest and slippers. Um, So the idea of the performance goes back to 1800 and this idea of that elitism. And this is I do think this is very American, that that somehow you can change identity by changing your clothes. Somehow you can refashion yourself by the way you speak. But the other thing I would say, the, the, when you talk about entrenchment, you know, this is something that's also been part of the Republican and the Tea Party. But that also was the same argument made by the supporters of Andrew Jackson. He was also the outsider. This was the man from the Tennessee frontier. This was a man who was seen as a cracker. This is a man who was going to come in and clean up Washington. So even that idea is not original. And the other tension I really think that's going on with this elitism dynamic. It's also about the difference between cosmopolitan versus provincial. Because if you read Trump's inaugural address, which I have read, and I know he didn't write it, but the the major argument that he makes is this kind of American first patriotism. And this is one of the ways he did reach working class voters, the idea of not just building the wall to keep out immigrants, but the wall was also supposedly metaphorically to keep jobs in this country. And the idea of cracking down on the loss of jobs. And I think this is even something we can see that Jefferson tapped into. There's always been this tension and dynamic between, and it goes back to what Stephen said about the real Americans, who's the real Americans, who's not. But it's this idea that the provincials, the people in our country, what we often refer to as the heartland, uh, that somehow, in Jefferson's case, that it was always tied to land and agriculture, where people involved in commerce were somehow more commercial and more European, but the, 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 the fear of the cosmopolitan, and I think this is also what the culture war is about, is that liberal elites are too cosmopolitan. Liberalism itself is too open to understanding different religions. And I think that this tension is also something that Trump has tapped into, that, that also reinforces the urban-rural divide as well. I'm going to come back to the inaugural address because I, I pulled an excerpt out of the inaugural that I think speaks exactly to what you're saying here, Nancy. But but I also want to hear from some of our listeners tonight. Let's go to Daniel uh, in Manhattan. So, Daniel, when Nancy talks <clears throat> about the cosmopolitan elites, <laughs> does that describe you calling from New York City tonight? No. Hello. Hi. Are you right there? 
Oh, okay, no, no, it doesn't. The cosmopolitan elite, it doesn't. The fact of the matter is this. America is a Christian majority country. I know that the left-wing media that Donald Trump rails against, which is heavily Jewish, heavily cosmopolitan, and internationalist. Uh, the problem is this. Christians, the majority of people in this country, are being dominated by the elites at the Ivy League schools, the elites in the media, the wealthy international cosmopolitan elite on Wall Street, who are many of them, mostly the, the top movers and shakers, are Jewish. Left-wing Hollywood Jews, billionaire Jews, oligarchs within America. So I'm a Trump supporter in a sense. I don't agree with all his immigration uh, policies, but I do agree that the Christian majority, which is uh, mainstream America, okay. which includes African-Americans. Hey, hey, Daniel, we have a lot of people to get to. I think I have heard the essence of what you were going to say there. Let, let me hear from Charlie in Atlanta. Charlie, hi. That was just wild. Uh I think what Donald Trump is doing is very classic political technique, and that is creating a boogeyman, a nameless and faceless group of people that we have. I mean, you're the, the previous caller, right? He, he doesn't know who these people are that he's, that he's talking about. Don, Donald Trump, and, and Donald Trump creates a world in which a listener can, can create his own vision of what that boogeyman is. So it's out there, and we, we don't know the Wall Street traders, right? Do we know any of these people? Of course not. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, and these are people who allegedly are running the economy and creating, making life miserable for the average person. So Donald Trump doesn't, doesn't name anybody like that. He just, you know, throws it out there. It's, it's the classic. It's, 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 it, it is what the European fascists did in the 30s. All right. S- Stephen, what do you hear in both of those calls? Well, thank you. I mean, what a great example of what we're talking about with those two calls. I mean, I want to go back to this uh, cosmopolitan and provincial because I think that is precisely what the culture wars are about, is about who is included and who is excluded, who is an American, what is America really about. But I want to connect it to class because I think that nowadays it's the professional class who is in favor of these cosmopolitan values, right? So so if you go to the Women's March, um, people are saying, let's be inclusive of Muslims, let's be inclusive of African Americans, let's be inclusive of Native Americans. And that is the cosmopolitan um, texture that people learn if they go to not just Ivy League schools, but any bachelor's degree in the United States. And I think that's part of why Trump was so successful among the folks he called the poorly educated uh, because because that divide, the 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 uh, provincial cosmopolitan divide, is also a divide about uh, education and about professional class. And the professional class folks are the ones who benefit. Like myself, you know, I teach courses on the world's religions. Right? I want it. I want people to come in and be curious about Buddhism and be curious about Hinduism. Um, and I don't want them to think that America is white uh, Christians because it's never it's never been just white Christians. We've always we had Muslims here um, from the very beginning of the slave trade when they came over um, uh, to the to the United States. And so this has been a multi-religious country uh, from the very beginning. But it is this battle between is there a war on Christianity as with the first caller, you know, or are the or are the Christians engaged in a war on Islam? 
um, which is the tenor that we get from the second caller. And that's precisely the divisibility of the nation that we're wrestling with right now. You're listening to Indivisible. Glad you're tuned in tonight. And it's coming to you from St. Paul, Minnesota, Minnesota Public Radio. I talk about identity on Thursday nights and tonight. We're talking about why we appear to have become a country that really loves to hate its elites and how that works its way into a lot of the political rhetoric of the day. Nancy Eisenberg is with us. She's an historian at Louisiana State and the author of White Trash. And Stephen Prothero is with us. He's a chair of the religion department at Boston University and the author of Why Liberals Win Even When They Lose Elections. I want to hear from you wherever you are listening tonight. But but I think it would be valuable to hear from you. I, I know we're going to hear from you if you're in cities. I want to hear from you if you're outside of cities as well. What you think of this kind of populist language that President Trump uses, what does elite really mean? How do you hear that? Is this for you a kind of cosmopolitan and suburban or rural uh, divide. I mean, is that is that how you frame this? Is it about education? Is it about the size of your bank account? I'd like you to think about that. It's 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. You can find me on Twitter at KerryMPR, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Use the hashtag Indivisible Radio. One of the things that we're going to do here in just a minute is play a little bit from Donald Trump's inaugural speech and talk about how it was that he was kind of declaring war on elites during the campaign, almost from the beginning, during the inaugural. So I want you to listen to this, and then we'll talk about what Donald Trump was really saying. Here he is from the inauguration. The establishment protected itself, but not the citizens of our country. Their victories have not been your victories. Their triumphs have not been your triumphs. And while they celebrated in our nation's capital, there was little to celebrate for struggling families all across our land. That all changes starting right here and right now. Because this moment is your moment. It belongs to you. What do you hear in that? We'll talk about that on Indivisible. Stay with us. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. 
there's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. And Indivisible tonight from St. Paul, Minnesota and Minnesota Public Radio. And I'm Carrie Miller. Nancy, I want to come to you on what you heard in that excerpt from the inaugural speech that Donald Trump gave about a month or so ago. Yeah, I think it's that classic thing is, I mean, he's been saying this all along, too, is if he's the savior, he has all the answers that he represents the interests of the common man. It's basically the entrenched people in Washington who are very much seen as bureaucrats, liberal professionals. And I do think, as Stephen was talking about, it also is about the professional class. That's also tied into this cosmopolitan provincial divide. And and it is a factor in our class system. Um, I just checked the statistic the other day, but right now, only 32.5% of our population who are going to enter the workforce have college degrees. Uh, So we have to realize that this is part of the problem when we celebrate meritocracy, when we celebrate education as the only means to move up the social ladder. That excludes a large portion of our population. Uh, But we also have to realize that this idea that America has had elites has always been with us. We have always had elite class. Uh, Not only were Jefferson and Washington elite planters, but at the time that Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, 40% of the white male population didn't own land and weren't allowed to vote. If we go to 1930, during the Great Depression, uh, again, 40% of the population were landless tenants. And two-thirds were in, in the South, Two-thirds were white. And this is one of the problems that we don't want to recognize, that we've had widespread poverty in rural America throughout our entire history. It's not a new problem. And there is this problem that when politicians come in and claim to offer all the solutions, claim to represent the interests of people whose class they're not even a part of, it also is part of our political game. The demands that we insist on, that in an American democracy we except wide disparities in in wealth in this country. We always have, but we expect our politicians to pretend to be like they're one of us. And this is exactly what Donald Trump has mastered, and he knows how to do it, in part because of his experience on reality TV, in part because this this is the effective kind of populism that has always worked. In American society. Lauren says on Twitter, uh, 45, meaning 45th president, is cosmopolitan. His cabinet is 100 percent elites. This is about willful ignorance, the reason the GOP works to dismantle education, etc. To the phones here to Emily, listening in Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, Emily. Hi. Hi. Tell me what you're thinking about this. So an elitist to me is someone who just has this ridiculous amount of wealth. Because I really think American culture, especially today, um, if you have a lot of wealth, you definitely have a lot of power. Today, it seems like anything can be bought from, you know, politics to um, anything through the smallest parts of your life. So I really don't picture someone who's highly educated. I don't picture man or woman or any kind of race or 
something like that. It's simply someone who has so much power that they're able to do whatever they want and, and also get away with it. So for you, Emily, though, you started out saying it's really about wealth. So it's about money and the power that that buys you. Okay, good. So, Stephen, I kind of want to break the code about elitism. So we hear from Emily that for her it's about the amount of money that you have and then you accrue power through that. But I was also thinking about higher education because we're living in an economy where whether you go to college now makes a huge difference in your economic potential and your wages for most of your working life. Is higher education also creating a, a class of elites because the gap is becoming so wide? Mm-hmm. I think so, and I think that that's a global issue too. We're talking about the United States, but if you think about if you think about Trump and that and that excerpt uh, you you just gave us from the inaugural address, the promise uh, of the populist leader there is we need to get rid of all these other people who have power, right? these other elites in Washington, the establishment, Mm -hmm. what's left once you get rid of all those people is in theory the ordinary human, the ordinary, you know, American. But in reality, it's the strong man. It's the person who is leading this populist charge. And we see this around the world. We're not just seeing it uh, with Trump. We see it with Modi, uh, prime minister of India. We see it with um, Erdogan in Turkey. Turkey. Mm -hmm. And with Duterte in the Philippines. And if you want to make sense of Trump in a world in which we have all these Trumps elsewhere, I think you also require an international frame. And what's common across the international space is the new global economy. And in that new global economy, the way you get ahead is through education. And that's why I think the professional class is so profoundly important. And, uh, and, And I think that there's, you know, for those of us who are worried about these strong men who are, you know, in many cases, uh, anti-democratic, um, pushing against free speech norms, pushing against religious liberty norms in the name of a particular race or a particular religion, or in the case of Trump, you know, white Christians who voted for Trump overwhelmingly. I mean, Trump lost almost every other demographic <laughs> except for white people and Christian people. Um, and and so, uh, so I think there's a there's a global frame here to this elitism, and I think it's very much connected to uh, the professional class and to the students who are coming out of Boston University, where I teach, and other places. They're going out into that global workforce, and one thing they do when they enter that workforce is fire people and make mm-hmm. things more efficient. Mm-hmm. And in that economy, you have winners and losers, and, the, and Trump appealed in this election very successfully to the people who are losing out in that uh, global economy. Uh, Kyle in uh, North Carolina says on Twitter, when there's geographic economic disparity, these are the sentiments that get fostered. We heard from Bob in Oakland Park, Kansas, who says this isn't of elites versus non-elites. It's that the Democratic coalition doesn't represent blue collar workers anymore. And to the phones to Marty listening in Nashville. Hey, Marty. Hi. Thanks so much for waiting. Thank you. I appreciate it. I feel very honored to get on. This is my second night listening to your show. Really enjoy it. I'm glad you're listening. Someone that is truly blue collar, and I'm multi generational. I would call myself double blue collar because we're the people that get up every morning. We leave. We come home dirty. We come home tired. Our hands are are wounded. You know, we've been in the sun all day. And I, you know, I voted for Trump for one reason. He was the only voice that was saying. You know, what we've 
construction sites for years. We should elect a farmer. We should elect a dentist. You know, we should elect a construction worker, the political powers, and try to get some balance back. And he was the only one that was saying things that, you know, that we could we could even associate with mentally and, and hopefully uh, in politics. But, you know, I'm I'm a several-generation blue-collar worker, and I voted for him because – but if you watch what he's doing now, it's like he has a book of uh, bylines to where he says, okay, I've got to speak to the white Christians today. i got to speak to the Hispanics tomorrow. I've got to speak to the – to the Native Americans, and it's like he has a little guide that says, this is what I need to say to get into this group of people. Nobody is yet speaking honestly about the problems in America. You know, he, ha- he has a he has a, a, a motive in everything he's doing, and it's really disheartening that we're still having multi-elitists appointed to tremendous power that no matter what he said, pre-election and post-election, America's not going to change because nobody is hearing our voice, the people that work every day, you know, and even college-educated people. You don't, you don't get wealthy. The gentleman from Boston University was talking about the, the people that he educates. You don't get wealthy with a college education. You get wealthy because you have associations and relationships that you gain and that you grow over time with people who are wealthy that pull you up from from the crowd of the mediocre or the crowd of everybody else. It's all about relationships. Mr. Trump cannot speak to people that work every day for a living. That you know that they have to budget a trip to Walmart. He well, can't but, speak that. But well. Marty, but but here's the thing. I thought you started your your <laughs> discussion here by saying you did vote for Donald Trump, didn't you? So you so at one point you yeah at one point you believed that he could speak to your concerns as a working person. Exactly. But now, with how I see him operating in the White House, it sounds like sounds like every day somebody says, you need to speak this way to Marty so he'll <laughs> stay on board with you. Okay. But you need to speak this way to this group of people so they'll stay mm-hmm. on board with you. It seems like it's the same old same. I'm very disillusioned and disappointed in the way things are going in the first 30 days. Marty, I'm really glad you're listening to the show and that you got a chance to call in. It's good to hear yeah. from you. So, Stephen, I, I, what do you hear in what Marty's saying? Well, I mean, this is it's great to hear, you know, hear this voice. And, you know, this is Marty used to be the classic Democratic voter, right? Exactly. I mean, in the in the era of, you know, the labor union and the Democrat was, you know, it was the fancy Republicans who were, you know, out for the capitalists, but it was the Democrats who were out for the labor and the and the working man and the blue collar guy. And it's really an important, you know, this is what a, a tweet brought up before, you know, the Democratic Party has to a great extent abandoned, uh, you know, labor unions. And um, they, for whatever reason, I mean, I think part of it was the Bill Clinton administration as he moved into what, you know, academic nerds call neoliberalism and, you know, deciding that he wanted to do free trade and and that he was going to grow the economy that way, um, that it really did leave behind a lot of these working people. And I, I understand the attraction uh, that they have to, uh, to Trump in the sense that, you know, the Democratic Party is more concerned about, um, I don't know, Native Americans or the environment than they are about all these, uh, all these working people. And it's a, it's a, uh, 
you know, or for that matter, you know, they care more about what Professor Prother at Boston University wants to talk about with, you know, isn't it great we have so many religions in America? You know, who cares about that? Like, get me a job, you know, get me, get me benefits. Uh, and, uh, and, I, I, and I understand that sentiment, and I also understand the disillusion. You know, when you see billionaires, you know, is, the question has become, is it going to be a millionaire or a billionaire who's the next person on the cabinet? That yeah. doesn't seem to be a Marty... Uh, blue-collar um, administration. Nancy, listen to this before you before you uh, add to what Stephen just said. Here's Laura, who called from small town Ohio. She says, I grew up in a small town. I moved to the city. Then I moved back to a small town. People think coastal elites are voting to take away their money to give to others. They think their enemy is poor people. And I know this is something you wrote about in your book. When, in fact, Laura adds, they're also, they're also on benefits. This is what I see. I don't get it. Would, would you speak to that, too? Yeah. This is actually something that I've written about. There's several things. I'd like with, with Marty had to say, I think, you know, this is something I wrote about in my book. We have to stop assuming that, that if you just work hard, you can get ahead. Class is not just connected to wealth. It's actually collected, connected to inheritance. And this has always been the case, inherited property. But now it's also about inheriting privileges, inheriting those skills to know how to navigate, how to get ahead in the professional world, how to get a college education. From the day you are born, if your parents have college degrees, they're going to be training you, they're going to be preparing you to enter into the professional world. So it's not just about wealth. And secondly, uh, you're right, this problem of how we think about the loss of the blue-collar voter. I mean, there are a lot of issues involved. I would also add that the Republican Party in various states has done a great deal with these right-to-work laws to dismantle unions. Uh, Unions have historically been the strongest defense for working people. Um, And this is one of the issues where you'll find that people who are in unions tend to stay in the Democratic Party. People who are not in unions do not. And the Trump supporters, as you said, there is a tension. There's a very serious tension because a lot of the Trump supporters, they're not coming from some mythic category, the white working class man. They come from all all over the, the class spectrum. Um, And many of the people, and this is based on research that's been done in Louisiana, but there is this tension, whereas liberal Democrats tend to believe in the idea of professional expertise. They believe in the American dream. They believe that you can rise up the social ladder. Uh, It also tends to be a case that many people who do not have the that ladder, do not have that path carved out to them, they're much more deeply afraid of losing status, losing ground. And if you look at people who are right above the poverty line, most of those people at least one to three times during their life will drop below the poverty line. So this is another tension, a class tension that we tend to ignore. Yeah. We tend to ignore this, this, this idea that in America we often do view the world as a zero-sum game. Um, And for people who are not the winners, people who have not succeeded, they feel even more threatened. And they feel threatened from a variety of different 
forces. Sometimes it is a boogeyman that they create. Sometimes they want to sort of target African-Americans. That kind of racism emerges. It can be religious racism. And that is even traced back to the 19th century. Economic competition. Um, why do you think women are paid so much less than men? Because the people who have that edge don't want to lose it, and they're afraid of losing it. They, they feel like they've already lost ground, and they feel that when you create a liberal society, they really believe that liberal elites are going to help other classes of people. They're not going to help the white working class. They're not going to help rural Americans. That they're going to help other disadvantaged groups. And this is, this is also one of the tensions that we don't express, so, we don't acknowledge. So, we have to stop arguing that we believe in equality across the board. We don't. Everybody has their own vested interests, which they protect. So, Nancy, just, just to be clear here, when you say in your book, uh, White Trash, this dream of upward mobility in America, the, this is where the tension comes in, the reality of how class and race create obstacles I mean, that's that's some of where the tension comes from, because when you talk about a zero sum game, you're saying a lot of Americans believe that if they're going to get ahead, somebody 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 is going to have something taken from them or if somebody else is going to get ahead, they're going to have something taken from them. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, there's there, there. And some of these are false scenarios about who the enemy is. I'm not at all that that because that's what polit- politicians manipulate. Mm. But it's also this fear if you are not in a secure economic position. And this is the other thing we forget about the working class is that often these people do not get to choose their careers. They have people looking over their back telling them what to do every day. They they don't have the kind of emphasis that their job is creative and meaningful that we associate with professional jobs. They don't have those options. And then in addition, they feel very insecure about whether they can even keep their home, whether they're going to be able to keep their job, whether they're going to be able to pass on what little they have to the next generation. And this has been always an issue about the lower class, is that people who look down on the lower class, and that can be the working class looking down on the poor, the people below the poverty line, um, they always feel resentment, hostility, tension. There's conflict there because they imagine maybe in a week, maybe in a month, maybe in a year, they might slip down. And this is the other side. We've had more downward mobility in this country than we've ever had upward mobility. And that's the story we don't tell. We always tell the upbeat story about work hard, get ahead, the, you know, America's the land of opportunity. Well, it is not. And nor has it been for the majority of Americans throughout our history. Let me do this, Nancy. You're listening to Indivisible. And tonight, as on Thursday nights, I talk about identity from Minnesota Public Radio. Tonight, it's where the ideas of elites, who are the elites, how they function, what that means in our political rhetoric, how that fits in to the ideal and idea of American identity. Stay with us. If you're on the phone lines, I'm going to get to you in just a second. Stay with me. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible.
This is Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm Carrie Miller and Indivisible coming to you tonight from Minnesota Public Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota. And we're talking about the idea of elites and how it is that we became a country that kind of loves to hate its elites. Stephen Prothero is with us from Boston University, and Nancy Eisenberg is with us from Louisiana State. And I want to go right back to the phones here. If you want to weigh in here, if you're getting a busy signal on the phone lines, try us back again. You can reach me on Twitter. It's at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Use the hashtag Indivisible Radio. I want to hear from as many of you as we can. So to Diana, listening in a suburb of Chicago. Diana, thanks so much for waiting. And, and tell me what you're thinking about here. Hi, Carrie. Thank you so much for uh, having me on. Sure. Uh, I love this question because I've spent so much time thinking about this personally. Mm-hmm. I come from a family of seven children. My father was a factory worker. Uh, both my parents graduated from high school, but I was the first one to go to college. Uh-huh. Um, but I think of my dad so often because he, um, I feel like he's going to end up, he's passed away, but having done better than I will with a college degree, yet in my family, which is heavily Republican and voted for Trump, I'm seen as the elite, huh. uh, I guess, because I went to college and I and I make more money, but I certainly don't feel that way. But when I look at those family members, I think there is a lot of what Nancy said about insecurity of they're not going to be able to duplicate what my dad did, which was to raise that family of nine people on a factory workers union income. And I think that's what a lot of working class um, want back. I mean, from my I feel like I'm sort of part of both worlds, I guess. And I see my nephews making ten, eleven dollars an hour, which is never going to get them anywhere. They have to live with family. They can never get ahead. And and my dad, for all his his smarts and his hard work ethic was not college material, but he was able to get out of college, have pride, stay at a place 30 years, retire with a pension, never paid a dime for any of his children's births, had great medical insurance, and we don't have any of that. So there's that. And then just two other quick points that I see that I'm divided with family members over. One is religion. I have some evangelical uh, Christian family members that just feel mocked about abortion and other issues by what they consider elites. Mm -hmm. And um, the other argument I have with folks is about regulations, too many regulations on guns, on businesses, on the federal government and our business too much. So those are just sort of the issues I see, but it's almost ironic to me to think I'm the elite when I'm not even sure I'll be able to retire. My dad retired at 55. I'm 53. Mm -hmm. I'm nowhere near that. And he paid off his house. I don't know if I'll do that. But ironically, the na- my neighbor, who had a, the, one of the last good union jobs at the power plant, is doing better than I am as a Trump supporter. And I, when I leave my house and I love him, we're friends, I think, you're the elite. You're the elite. <laughs> that is interesting. I'm struggling. I'm struggling. And Diana, I'm- really good to have you call. Stephen, uh, she was speaking right to what Nancy was saying about downward mobility, but then a lot of other things there. Um, will, will you yeah. respond to that? Well, you know, part of what I'm hearing and thinking is that uh, these are about class anxieties. But, you know, as the religious studies professor, I have to have to pick up on this idea of, you know, the evangelicals in the family and the um, religious and cultural anxieties. I mean, one of the arguments in my, you know, why liberals, you know, when the culture wars, even when they lose elections, is that the reason uh, 
conservatives win some of these elections is because they can point to these cultural gains that are made on the left by that cosmopolitan group, uh, whether it has to do with, in recent years, abortion or same-sex marriage, or in other years, more typically, not about sex, but about uh, inclusion, you know, Mm -hmm. who is and who is not um, an American. And there's an economic anxiety, but there's also a cultural anxiety. Um, Yes... I might not be able to afford retirement. Maybe um, I'm going to have a worse life economically than my parents had. But there's also this this cultural idea that there are forms of life that I value that are passing away. And maybe that's Christian America. Maybe that's, you know, Protestant America. Maybe that's hometown life. But these things are really real to people. And I think there's a there can be a sense sometimes when we talk about the class element that Politics, you know, and and uh, the Republicans are just kind of conning working class people into voting for them with these issues like abortion or worries about Muslims. But I think people really do have genuine anxieties about this. And part of what the political system does is it channels those anxieties into fears that can be where you can point to not just a boogeyman, but to an actual, you know, person. These Mexicans are taking your jobs or these Muslims are taking away Christmas from you. And there's this experience of Christmas being taken away because you remember when you were a kid and maybe you don't remember properly, but it's still a memory. Um, But but Stephen, as you're saying this, I I just want to say that some of this, I I think, feeds into a mythology about which is very tied into our identity. We end up talking about this almost every week. You know, a mythology of what America is that probably doesn't really meet what the historical reality of it, but we hang on tight to the idea of that myth. Yeah, that's right, and that's and that's what's operative. So you know, you can talk about oh, you know, we had we used to have Christian America, and now we don't anymore. And then you look at the numbers, and gosh, you know, there's more Christians in the U.S. than there are in any country on earth. Like mm-hmm. this is, seems like a pre- pretty Christian country to me. And you know, I ask this question to my students. And I'll have Jewish students in the class and I'll say, is this Christian America? And they'll look at me and they'll think, are you kidding me? Like, of course it is. Like, I experience Christian America every day, you know. And then um, a lot of the Christians in the class will, will say, like, no, you know, this, this is secular America. Or, you know, this is multi-religious America where Buddhists have more control than, than Christians do. So it isn't about the reality. It isn't about the numbers. It's about the perception. And part of what the culture wars language gives us is that we're in this battle, this kind of zero-sum battle where only one group is going to win. And those people look at the change that's happening around us, and they love it. Those liberals, they love that change. They love that this society is becoming, you know, more brown and black than white. They love that it's becoming, you know, Buddhists and, and, and you know, yoga centers and that fewer people are going to church. They welcome that change. But I don't. That change makes me scared. That change makes me worried. And so that's a lot of, of what's going on, in my view, in uh, this political space where even though the liberals are winning these culture wars and Catholics are now ordinary Americans and Mormons are ordinary Americans and you can have you know, same-sex marriage, even so, the right can point to those victories and say, that's why you need to go vote for me because there's this form of life passing away and I will take you back to it or I will uh, fight for your right to, uh, to live in that in that imaginary, you know, uh, remembered space that, that, that you long for and are nostalgic for. 
Heidi says on Twitter, an elite is anybody who has more than we do. Power, wealth, education, influence. We're all greedy for more. Madonna says, uh, just turn, mm-hmm. tuned in, finding it a little ironic that we're talking about why people hate elites with two academicians and a reporter. <laughs> Noted. And Jen says, we put them on a pedestal when we want to be like them. Fame, fortune, intelligence, Elite are those that we think are better. Nancy, what do you think? Well, first of all, I teach at LSU. I don't teach at Harvard. Um, So the idea of someone saying, oh, yes, all academics are elitist, (laughs) and the, the fact that it's true, a small percentage get PhDs, but I can also talk about my past and talk about my parents. My dad was able to become a dentist because of the GI Bill. Hmm. And this is the other great problem and why I think history is so important. The reason that the, the woman who called in before, who spoke so eloquently about her own frustrations and the differences with her family, Diana, is the fact yeah. that we did not have a stable middle class in this country until after World War II. And it was created by the federal government, which is what the Tea Party and the Republicans have taught us to hate. And in fact, it was because the government provided subsidies like the GI Bill. It provided uh, loans and guarantees on bank loans so people could buy homes. So many people who were not just white collar but were working class were able to buy homes and establish a life in suburbia. But as I also write about in my my book, White Trash, at the very same time, more people were able to achieve what is the measure of the American dream, which is home ownership. Uh, At that very same, same time, this is where we had the growth of trailer trash. We had the growth of people who couldn't own a home. So they were forced to live in trailers, and they were living in areas of towns on the periphery, areas that the government was not providing loans until the 19, um, you know, allowing them backing loans uh, and for buying trailers into the 1970s. So we will never escape class divisions. But I think we have to stop blaming the government because at the most important part of our history in the 20th century, it was the federal government that made it possible for us to have a healthy middle class. It wasn't the free market. Um, It was the government and the way in which it was able to extend the privilege of home ownership because when you could buy a home in the 1950s, it was cheaper to get a mortgage than it was to, you know, rent, to live in a rental property. So this is the other problem we have. We, We have clearly lost our faith in government. We have, we misunderstand and often misidentify who the villain is, which is what Trump does when he says government is the villain or it's the bureaucrats who are the villain. And part of this does come out of the fact that we have, we don't have a good grasp on our history. And I think it's really tiresome when people, you know, call in, write in and start saying, oh, you're an academic, you're an elite, so I can't listen to you. (laughs) Um, We should study our own past, study where our parents came from, uh, and and we'd understand that people have very complex backgrounds. We just don't neatly fit into one category. Which is exactly what this show is all about. Uh, Anna <laughs> says on Twitter, as an academic, I wear the label elitist as a badge of honor. Expertise is nothing to be ashamed of. Anti-intellectualism is. 
uh, to Maureen, uh, listening on the Virginia-North Carolina border. Hey, Maureen, hi. Hi. Tell me what you're thinking about. So when you, well, when you talk about the elitist, you know, what is someone's vision of who's an elite? I think it has to do with, it, it takes us back to the haves and the have-nots again. Um, and people develop their perceptions based on who they surround themselves with. Mm-hmm. So the person that is making $7 an hour or $8 an hour is certainly not going to run in the same circles as the person that makes $200 an hour. Those things just don't happen. And then we develop our perceptions around that. Now, I'm a nurse practitioner. I live in a community of less than 400 people. 95% of the people that we care for are Medicare and Medicaid. Um, I've been lucky enough to travel all over this country. I have seen Hispanics, legal and, and undocumented, working in the fields, picking the food that we eat and that is put on our tables. And I can tell you that in 25 years of nursing, I have never seen a white man standing in line trying to take that individual's job. Nor have I been able to have anyone tell me that they lost their job to a migrant. Um, So I think there is this vision that we don't have responsibility for where we end up and who we are. I'm the first one to graduate from college in my family. What concerns me the most about what I hear out of the rhetoric of the White House is that it doesn't fit what he told the, the, the bill he sold the people that put him there. And I, I, the best analogy I can give is it's like trying to cook a frog. You put him in hot water and he jumps out immediately. But if you put him in a pot of cold water and turn the heat up gently, he never knows he's been cooked. And this is what scares me the most about Trump is because he's filled his cabinet with all these people that can't identify with John Q. Public. Maureen, I'm so glad you heard the show and you had a chance to call in. Thank you. I want to hear from Carol in Liberdeen, Missouri. Hey, Carol. Hi. I know it's been a while. Thank you so much for waiting. You bet. Hi, Carrie. Hi. Um, I just, I live in suburban Missouri. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a Democrat, and I am not um, an academic. I'm a nurse also. Uh-huh. Um, have been married for years. I was raised Southern Baptist. We have five children. They're all Democrats. I don't, it really, I'm not going to be ashamed of being a Democrat or it's not being an elitist, it's just paying attention to what's really happening, not believing fake news, maybe maybe digging a little deeper um, to you, you know, find some truth or some honesty. But um, I just wanted to say I, I live, I mean, in the middle of Trump country, but um I voted for Hillary, and I'm proud of it. I think, Carol, that you've raised something that I wanted to to take back to Nancy and Stephen. And uh, Nancy and Stephen, the Democrats are trying to figure out how to how to speak to this. In fact, even as they next week elect, elect a new chair of the DNC, the argument is how do we reach people who normally would have been in the Democratic circle, but who drifted away? 
many of whom, as with Marty in Nashville, Tennessee, ended up voting for Donald Trump. So, uh, Stephen, would you speak to that first? Yeah, I mean, I think the Democrats, you know, really tried to do that after the Kerry election around the religion issue, where they thought, gosh, you look around, 95 percent of Americans believe in God, and we're the party that never talks about God, right. and they're the, they're the pro-God party. Like, why is that a good plan? And so um, both uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, uh, you know, over the last decade have really tried to talk about Christianity and their faith and the Bible and Jesus cares about the poor and all that kind of stuff. And uh, that message somehow really hasn't gotten through. And so if they're going to pivot to talking more about working class people uh, and um, talking more about labor unions, um, they have to hope that it it clicks in, you know, clicks in a little better. And in terms of this um, elitism and, uh, you know, the charge of me as being elitist, I mean, I guess I am an elitist, uh, but it reminds me of uh, Alan Bloom in the midst of the culture wars in 1990. He had written Closing of the American Mind, and that book was a kind of a screed against the way the university had gone over toward relativism and toward the counterculture and was having black studies departments and women's studies departments and why couldn't they look at the great um, literature of the world. He was asked to give a talk at Harvard and he walked in and and the way he started his speech was, you know, greetings to my fellow elitists. (laughs) And, you know, that was a time (laughs) when the right side, the conservative side of the culture wars was kind of proudly elitist. Isn't that funny? I mean, that wasn't, that was, that was 25 years ago. Yeah, not that long ago. And so um, this is a very malleable category, um, this elite and non-elite. And we're in a moment where the counterculture has sort of made its way into the mainstream. And so, so the right wants to be uh, anti-elitists now in ways that they really haven't been for, you know, all that much of American history. They've typically been more, you know, representing the elites. Stephen, thank you. Really good to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. It's a a great program. Nancy, I have about a minute. Yeah, I'd just like to say that I I agree that this is a term that is manipulated. And I also think it's really difficult for people to navigate news, to figure out what's true, to understand that politicians – most of them are not going to tell you the truth, although in Trump's case, it's most of the time he's not telling you the truth. I just wish the Democrats would stop talking about class in a meaningful, accurate way based on the facts. That would be nice. Nancy, this was a delight. Thank you so much for making the time Thank to be you. with us. Nancy Eisenberg is the author of White Trash, the 400-year untold story of class in America. Stephen Prothero the author of Why Liberals Win Even When They Lose Elections, Catch Indivisible, uh, every weeknight, Monday through Thursday at 7 o'clock. I'll see you back here on Thursday. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.